Hi, Ghastly Ghouls. I am Lee. And it's D-Way. Your gracious host, and welcome to Ghastly. So I just want to give a huge thank you to everybody joining in today for our third episode. Devin, what's new with you? Oh yeah, working every day of my life, uh, hanging out with the kiddos, and then I just started a cybersecurity class, and so it's my third week, and I'm stressed, so this is fun. Things have been busy for us in this household, but we are still here to bring you guys a crazy story today. So we can go ahead and dive into an unfathomable and devastating set of murders, the Hart family murders. I want to just give a heads up. This episode does cover child abuse. It involves the foster care and adoption systems gone awry. It involves murder, of course. And so if these topics would be triggering or too much to handle, just want you to know that that's what this episode is handling. So if you need to skip, then you can. We are discussing a family, right? The Hart family. So let's start with the parents. I think that's a good starting point. Let's start. Jennifer Jean Hart and Sarah Margaret Gangler first entered each other's lives when they were studying in college at Northern State University, located in Aberdeen, South Dakota, around the late 90s to early 2000s. Aberdeen? Aberdeen or Aberdeen. Not Aberdeen? Aberdeen! (laughs) Sorry, just looked it up. It's Aberdeen. I've been thinking Aberdeen in my mind. Anyways, not a huge part of the story, but Aberdeen, South Dakota. They went to this college together around the late 90s, early 2000s, and they had a lot in common, the two of them, Jennifer and Sarah. Both women were also, one, from South Dakota. Two, they just so happened to be born in 1979, only two months apart. Three, they were the oldest siblings in their families. Four, they both majored in elementary education. And five, they both wanted to foster children in the future. So much in common and a match made in heaven, right? So a side note, a friend even said that Sarah and Jennifer were always a listening ear for them and even gifted her a kitten as a Christmas gift one year. And I also need to mention that sadly this romance was brewing in the conservative state of south dakota where being gay was super taboo and in current times there is still so much progress that needs to be made with society loving and accepting the lgbtq plus community but the late 90s and early 2000s were a time where gay couples were much more frowned upon and judged especially in such a republican state so good for them for loving each other anyways although they did actually have to hide their relationship in college and lost quite a few (coughs) friends who they informed of their relationship. Anyways, in college, Sarah focused her studies specifically on special education and ended up graduating in 2002. And Jennifer actually did not graduate college and ended up leaving the university with Sarah when she graduated. So as we just discussed, South Dakota is super Republican and did not allow same-sex marriage at that time. Side note, it was legalized in 2015. But the couple moved to Minnesota together in 2004 after graduation, which is when they finally came open about their relationship. 
but gay marriage also wasn't legal in Minnesota until 2013. So 2004, they officially came out. And then in 2005, Sarah Gangler had her name legally changed to Sarah Hart to match Jennifer's last name, although they weren't legally married until a bit later. The couple also tends to move from state to state quite a bit in this story, so I'll try my best to keep the moves clear while I tell it to you. Enough about the nitty-gritty details of their relationship and how they met, but remember how I mentioned that they both wanted to foster children in the future. Mm-hmm. They finally started making this dream a reality in 2006, but what is meant to be a dream actually becomes what nightmares are made of, and a series of very, very unfortunate events unfolds. The first child fostered by the hearts was a 15-year-old girl who will remain unnamed. She was fostered by Sarah and Jennifer while they lived in Minnesota around 2005. The couple throughout the story was very active on social media, and as we all know, many people portray their lives as much more glamorous on social media than it really is, whether intentional or not. While their social media posts made their time with a 15-year-old seem loving, friendly, adventurous, awesome, the couple was disclosing issues and challenges to their close friends that they were having with the girl that they were fostering. Family friends report that Jennifer and Sarah were struggling with the girl's behaviors, but really wanted to help her out, and they would tell stories of her not doing homework, being disobedient, and eating out of the trash. <laughs> eating out of the trash. Yeah, I know. Those Say. first two, I feel like, are expected of right. like She's any a child. Teenager. Yeah, but eating out of the trash, I feel like, just shows kind of a history <clears throat> of um, neglect. neglect. Yeah, 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 not being fed, which is sad. And so they tried little things to try to help this teen girl feel more comfortable, such as take her to appointments to learn to apply makeup, um, but then they would be upset when she was disinterested in makeup. So um, interesting relationship there. The teen girl was scheduled to attend a therapy session with the therapist and Jennifer and Sarah went to drop her off there. So here's the twist in the story. In reality, Sarah and Jennifer were dumping her at the therapist to put her back in the foster care system without saying goodbye to her. They just left her there for the therapist to tell her that her foster parents would never be coming back to pick her up after she had spent an extended period of time learning to trust these two people as her parents. Um, she didn't even get a goodbye from them. They just left. Wow, that's foul. Yeah. So, That's strike one. Right. Just a pro tip <clears throat> if you want to give a child insurmountable abandonment issues, this is the way to do it. But although this was devastating for the teen, it ended up saving her from an even more ominous future. Next up, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus were the first set of three children to be actually adopted by Jennifer and Sarah Hart. So these three were biological siblings born in Texas, with Marcus being born first in 1998, followed by Hannah in 2002, and Abigail in 2003. The children's biological mother's name is Tammy Skurik. So Tammy, their biological mother, she had a troubled childhood herself. She was taken from her mother as a toddler, spent her teen years running from her grandparents' home and intermittently living on the streets. 
She was diagnosed with depression and borderline personality disorder, and she gave birth to Marcus at 18 years old, followed by Hannah three and a half years later, and Abigail was born about two years after that, right after Christmas of 2003. Sadly, Tammy lost custody of all three of her children for medical neglect, actually. By Hannah's second birthday, the toddler had to have a chunk of her flesh removed due to an ant bite infected with staph. So less than a year later... What is uh, medical neglect, Lee? Medical neglect from this story is the first time I've ever heard of this happening, but it's a failure of the parent to provide medical treatment to their child. Mm. And so some sort of infection like this case gets too bad and it endangers the child. Mm. So um, they found out about it and took them away. Yeah, yeah. So... After that staph infection, uh, less than a year after that, Hannah, the same daughter, developed an upper respiratory infection that turned into pneumonia. And again, Tammy failed to give her daughter medical attention quick enough in both infections, really. And when Hannah was hospitalized for the pneumonia, CPS presented with paperwork for all three children to leave Tammy's custody. (laughs) Yeah, all three. So she was granted one last day at the zoo with them and never saw them again after the summer of 2004. And Tammy did actually have to serve jail time for child endangerment and failure to pay court fees after this incident of pneumonia. So in March of 2006, Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail arrived at Sarah and Jennifer Hart's home for their foster care placement. These siblings were from Texas, but they were moved a thousand miles away to the Hart home in Minnesota. And then six months later, in September of 2006, all three children were officially adopted into the Hart family. Okay, so that story was about their biological mom neglecting them. Yeah, that was their biological mom neglecting them. And and then they were put into the foster care system after the medical neglect. And then they were subsequently adopted by Sarah and Jennifer Hart. Yep. Yeah. So now we're moving forward to another set of three biological siblings adopted by Jennifer and Sarah Hart. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, why not? (laughs) I mean, there are children who need homes. Bring them in. Get them by the threes. So this brings the total count of Hart children to a whopping six in June of 2008. Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra were the three siblings who were next adopted. They were taken from their biological mother's custody due to issues with her substance abuse. Their mom struggled with cocaine addiction. Devante was born in 2002, Jeremiah in 2004, and Sierra in 2005, all in Houston, Texas. The three siblings also had an older fourth sibling who was not adopted by the Hearts due to behavioral reasons. Devante, the oldest of these siblings, is one of the most publicly known adopted siblings in the Hart family because of some media attention that I'll get into later. And because of the horrible conditions that he was born into and raised in as well. Devante was six when he was adopted by the Hearts, but he was born with drugs in his system. Hmm. This child barely knew any words besides shit and fuck. He had already smoked, drank alcohol, been shot at with a gun, and had a violent attitude by the age of four. All of those things that I just said by the age of four. So we're talking a very traumatic life before entering the system. And the first night that Devante spent with Sarah and Jennifer, it took him forever to get to sleep 
and both Sarah and Jennifer spent the night sobbing actually at the daunting task of not only raising Devante, but raising this troubled child and five other children with traumatic pasts. But they also showed a passionate dedication to building a better life for them and reported feeling a really deep connection with Devante. They're going to call that therapist and be like, hey, do you do four-year-olds? Oh, yeah. And then just drop them off, not Hey, come do you do six kids at once? Yeah. <laughs> once there were officially six adopted heart children in 2008, Sarah and Jennifer were only 29 years old, with children aged 10, 6, 6, 5, 4, and 3. Sarah and Jennifer did end up getting legally married in 2009, about a year after adopting Devonte, Jeremiah, and Sierra. As previously mentioned, Sarah and Jennifer love to glamorize their family on social media, especially Facebook. And hey, if I saw a couple who dedicated their lives to saving six young children from the foster care system and raising them with love before the age of 30, I would think they were absolute saints. I cannot even imagine doing that myself. Nope. There were ample pictures posted of the family on exciting trips and having a grand old time in life, just a big happy family of eight. But time would tell that the picture-perfect image was a deceitful facade covering some very ominous secrets. The Hart family is still living in Minnesota in 2008. Hannah, who is six at the time, and this is the daughter who had the staph infection, the mm -hmm. pneumonia. Okay. Um, she is at school when her teacher notices bruises on her left arm. And when questioned, Hannah says that her mom, Jennifer, hit her with a belt. Ooh. Which, hasn't Hannah already had enough physical trauma in her life with the staff and, yep. and the infections? Like, can the parents responsible for her protection please spare her of continuous physical pain? Anyways, when confronted with the fact that Hannah had disclosed the belt beatings to her teacher, Sarah and Jennifer actually pull their children out of the public school system for an entire year which screams suspicious. It screams, hey, I want to abuse my child without getting caught. Yep. Huge red flag. They actually did not get in trouble for this after lying to the police, saying that Hannah had simply fallen down the stairs and the police believed them. Eventually, the children are put back into public schools the following year. And in November 2010, two years after the bruises were cited on Hannah, her little sister, Abigail, stated that her back and stomach had owies on them and that she was scared of her two moms. She was telling this to a adult at school. She had bruises from her sternum to her navel or her belly button. And as more details are pulled out of Abigail after she made that comment about having owies, it is revealed that Jennifer and Sarah found a penny, a penny, like a coin, one cent. Beef. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Caught red-handed in Abigail's possession, and they accused her of stealing. So Jennifer then proceeded to beat Abigail with her fist and submerge her head in cold water as punishment for the alleged theft of one cent. Jeez, man. Abigail was seven. Yeah. Let that sink in. Not that this is appropriate for literally any stage of a person or child's life, but this is a poor, sweet seven-year-old child. And this abuse was further investigated by authorities this time, and all six of the Hart children confirmed that they also had been constantly spanked and beaten by Jennifer and Sarah. They also were all deprived of food on a regular basis. 
Surprisingly, Sarah did take the blame for this abuse, although Abigail said that Jennifer was the one who beat her, but Sarah even pled guilty to misdemeanor domestic assault in court, but was only sentenced to community service for one year. Shocker. For, yeah, abusing six children for an extended amount of time. And even after Sarah got in legal trouble for the child abuse, a year later, Hannah told the nurse at school that she had not eaten in at least a day. And at this point, all six children were permanently pulled out of the public school system again to be homeschooled by their mothers. Huge Mm. red flag. And they basically want to be able to abuse their children without anything being reported and without the children having access to other adults to confide in about their abuse. They don't want everybody to know their kids take pennies, though. Bad reputation right there. Penny thieves. Is that a phrase? Penny thieves? Maybe There's not. petty thieves. Petty thieves. <laughs> <laughs> penny for your thoughts. Mm, yeah. Penny loafers. Yeah, no, it's, it's petty, petty thief. <laughs> well, a penny thief is a uh, petty thief. That works, too. I also want to note that in the midst of the abuse happening, the hearts are taking their children to participate in activism. They're showing up to rallies, supporting charity campaigns, and taking pictures of their kids as activists with the big flashy signs. People who observed the family said that the children knew to smile for photos, and then after the photos were done being taken, they looked just dead inside once the camera was away. And the children, they must have been really confused inside because they're being trained to show a picture of a compassionate, loving family, and then behind closed doors, their form of being grounded was being forced to skip meals and literally be neglected Spoiler alert. So after all six children were permanently pulled from the public school system, the family then packs up and moves from Minnesota to Oregon, which almost sounds like trying to start a new life in a place who doesn't know your history of abuse. Except, dun, 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 in Oregon, the authorities thankfully were made aware of the Minnesota abuse allegations by a family friend of the hearts. And those children need someone like that in their life. So authorities began an investigation where they interviewed the children, family members, and family friends. Some crazy strict rules, abusive patterns, and unhealthy eating habits were revealed in these interviews. It was actually family friends that reported the family's unsettling behaviors, but the children did not reveal any new incidents since Minnesota in the interviews. And it is noted by authorities that the children's responses seemed scripted, like their parents were directing them and telling them what to say. So whether no perceived abuse actually happened or if the kids were just scared to admit anything, no one knows for sure. Some things reported by family friends were that the kids were not allowed to laugh at the dinner table or tell jokes. <laughs> what? If they ate too much food, the kids would be forced to lie down in bed for five hours straight and to skip their next meals as punishment. The children could not speak unless they raised their hands and were granted permission to speak like it is some first grade classroom. And they couldn't even wish each other a happy birthday. Mm. That's 
terrible. It's like so depersonalized just to take away. It's almost like the parents were trying to take away like any history of their previous lives, including their births. It's like, what's the point? Yeah, of having six kids if you're gonna kind of just like do all steal that the joy out of yeah, yeah out of their lives it's really sad so i mean can you imagine how joyless the lives must have been because if sarah and jennifer viewed these things as acceptable for those family friends to observe who ended up reporting it in interviews like what far worse things were they doing behind closed doors them not being allowed to wish each other happy birthday them having to raise their hand to talk like this was in front of other people. You can assume, I'm assuming, that behind closed doors, they were treating those kids really badly. In the investigation, Jennifer played off the family friend stories as just, quote, them being judgmental of a lesbian couple with six African-American children, end quote. Which, the family friend's reports are such specific details that people are not going to just fabricate that just because they don't like the demographics of your family. Not but, in uh, not in 2006 or whatever year this yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, like, this isn't like 1950. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but apparently the investigation did not find the hearts guilty of any abuse and there was no safety threat identified. Shame on the state, man. Mm-hmm. Like the state just fails over and over again with a lot of these cases. They just don't investigate. And it's like, this is blatantly obvious shit. Yeah, I know. It's really sad. The foster care system just has so much improvement that needs to be made. It's insane. I just would love to know what specific person cleared that family. Yeah. After knowing the kids can't laugh or talk without permission. Such a miserable life. All this time, Sarah and Jennifer are posting pictures on social media. Surprise, surprise. Of the family smiling, traveling, being the picture-perfect family of eight. And Jane Ridley from the New York Post summed it up perfectly by saying, like any circus animal, the kids had to perform while the crowds were there so they could later be allowed to eat, sleep, and have all the basic rights that any other child could expect. Which I thought was well said. And while the Hart family is still living in Oregon, there's actually a photo of their son, Devante, that went viral on social media and Devante turned out to be such a sweet giving child and he literally chose to spend his 11th and 12th birthdays raising money for charities apparently his siblings couldn't tell him happy birthday but he could spend his birthdays raising money for charities which is really sweet and he also was known to carry around a sign that says free hugs and would hug anyone who needed it which is really wholesome And then there's this very sweet photo on the internet of Devante at a Black Lives Matter protest, tearfully hugging a white police officer that if you search this case, or especially Devante's name, that's probably one of the first photos that you'll see if you look it up. Next, the Hart family ends up moving to Woodland, Washington, which is just slightly above the Washington, Oregon state line, north of Portland. And they bought a two-story, three-bedroom home on two acres of land, but still had some close neighbors, one of which was the DeKalb family. Yeah, that makes sense. Three beds for eight people. Yeah, that yeah, definitely makes sense. They just got two bedrooms with like 20 bunk beds in yeah. them. Sounds kind of fun if they allowed fun in the house, which <laughs> yeah, they don't. Yeah, fun's not allowed. Yeah. They're sleeping on shacks on Yeah, the it could be some children's dream, but not in this home. So at 1.30 a.m. one morning... In August of 2017, Hannah, who is 15 at this time, actually jumps out of her window from the second story of the home and runs to their neighbor's home to seek help 
and a refuge from her own home. And she tells these neighbors that Jennifer and Sarah, her two parents, were racist and were abusing all six of the children who were all African-American. She pleaded for them not to make her go back home to Jennifer and Sarah. And these neighbors observed that she was missing a few teeth and she looked younger than she was, like malnourished. But the hearts found Hannah and brought her back home the next morning. Jennifer tried to explain everything to the neighbors by saying that the kids are, quote, drug babies whose biological mother had mental health struggles. So Hannah was just lying and acting out because of this. So the neighbors didn't report the incident and believed Sarah and Jennifer. And keep in mind, at this point, the kids are pulled out of school. They're being homeschooled by Sarah and Jennifer. So the neighbors are actually the only people that these kids could try to reach out to at this point to report any abuse that's happening. Mm, Wow. It's really sad. This is the kind of stuff, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if you guys know how this works, but Lee has read all this, done all the information, and I'm just here to provide commentary. So I don't really know how it ends, but, like, I wouldn't be surprised if these kids ganged up and killed these people because it's ridiculous. (laughs) Like It is ridiculous. The kids just deserve better treatment than that. It's sad. Like, after all they went through with their biological mothers, like, just give them some love. Yeah, once again, the neighbors, like, I don't know how you don't call in on that just for a welfare check, but... Oh my gosh, I'm the type of person, if I even suspect something going on, I'm calling the police. We have a story about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm filing a report, just to be safe. If you're sus, you get, you need to answer some questions, that's it. Yeah, exactly. If you're legit, it'll all pan out, and you'll be happy that somebody cares enough to question it. Yeah, it just needs to be documented somewhere. You know, they could do an investigation, see that allegations are false, whatever... But just things need to be documented. Moving forward from here, after Hannah went to try to escape to the neighbors, Devante, who was also 15, the same age as Hannah, was going over to the same neighbor's house on several occasions to ask them for food and for them to keep these requests from his parents because they would abuse the kids and would withhold food as punishment for the kids. (laughs) So imagine the desperation that the kids must have been feeling in order to escape their house, knowing that if they get caught, they're going to be punished for it. They have to escape their house to the neighbors repeatedly just for food. Like, it's so sad. It's so scary to imagine. At this point, after having Hannah and Devante visit their house, thankfully, the neighbors now did report the Hart family to the police and to the DSHS, which is the Department of Social and Health Services for Washington State. This report was made on March 23rd, 2018. DSHS caseworkers subsequently tried to contact the Hart family to no avail. They couldn't get the family to answer the door, so they left a business card in the front door. And once the family found the business card, they packed up and left the house for a trip that they would never come back from. Hmm. The next day, the caseworker returned to the home to find that the Hart family had abruptly left. All eight of them were gone from the house. So the Harts are clearly desperate to evade caseworkers and any accountability for the abuse that they've been inflicting. It's also clear they've been trying to fabricate a story to explain why they suddenly left as well. Sarah Hart text a friend named Cheryl in the middle of the night, we're talking 3 a.m., claiming that she has to go to the hospital because she's so sick. And that was the last text that she sent to Cheryl. Between March 24th and March 26th, 
the entire Hart family is driving from their home in Woodland, Washington and traveling south through Oregon on Route 101 and then on Route 1 in Leggett, California. And Route 1 is this iconic highway spanning from Leggett in North California all the way down California's southernmost tip or to the southernmost tip. The entire highway runs directly next to the Pacific Ocean and is arguably one of the most well-known scenic highways in the U.S. Route 1 is where you will find Big Sur, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and just all of these amazing steep oceanside cliffs consistently along the highway. I used to go visit my brother when he lived in San Diego, and he would take me along this Route 1. Which one? And, uh, Blake. Okay. And it was so beautiful. And so this family... They were driving along Route 1. They were experiencing all those gorgeous sunsets over the Pacific Ocean that are unparalleled. And they drive down Route 1 until they hit the Fort Bragg area on the night of March 24th. And then they spend a full 24 hours here until the night of March 25th. And I do want to note, this is the Fort Bragg city in California, not the Fort Bragg military base in North Carolina. Remember the friend Cheryl that Sarah texted in the middle of the night about her needing to go to the hospital. So Cheryl, at this point, it's been, you know, over 24 hours since Sarah sent that text. Cheryl's getting increasingly concerned because she hasn't heard anything else back from anyone in the family. So she actually calls an emergency dispatcher on March 26th just to do a welfare check on the hearts because she's so concerned and she is a great and caring friend. Everyone needs a Cheryl in their life. The Department of Social and Health Services try to make contact and check in with the family yet again on the 26th, of course, unsuccessfully. Here comes a part of the story that makes my stomach hurt. Mm, here we go. A person traveling down the beautiful Route 1 is admiring the ocean and the large cliffs that Route 1 is so reputed for. And as they're enjoying their sightseeing about 13 miles north of Fort Bragg, where the Hart family had been staying, this sightseer notices something on the rocky shoreline at the bottom of one of the 100-foot cliffs. And that something was an upside-down gold SUV. 911 is called, and five humans are discovered dead inside the Yukon, later identified as the parents, Sarah and Jennifer Hart, and three of the Hart children, Marcus, Abigail, and Jeremiah. Poor Abigail's body was covered in bruises that indicated abuse that had been happening leading up to the deaths. So this leaves Sierra, Hannah, and Devante not found in the car. Later, Sierra's remains were devastatingly pulled from the Pacific Ocean, weeks later. And then, a foot and a shoe washed up on shore. Which is, I think, one of the most morbid details of the story to me. And this foot was subsequently identified as Hannah's foot through DNA testing. And can you imagine being the person who found this foot on the shoreline? Like you just find, find a foot in a shoe. And much more importantly, can you imagine being Hannah who the foot belonged to? There's no way of knowing what happened to the rest of her body. Like what, you know, was she eaten by a shark? Like what happened? There's no way of knowing yeah. how her foot was separated from the rest of the body. It's just really scary and sad. The rest of her body was never found, and Devante's remains have never been found to this day. He is the only child who no part of his remains have ever been found. Although 
Devante was not found. He was declared legally dead in 2022. Well, rest in peace to the kiddos, at least. Yeah, to the kids only. And at the time of their deaths, Marcus was 19, Hannah was 16, Devante was 15, Jeremiah was 14, Abigail 14, Sierra was 12, and Sarah and Jennifer Hart were 38 years old. So there's some information that was uncovered in the investigation. Jennifer Hart was the person who drove the SUV off the cliff, killing her family. During their drive to and through California, Sarah's internet search history included drowning, suicide, and lethal Benadryl dosage. Toxicology reports from Sarah and three of the children did show Benadryl in their systems. And Sarah actually had a whopping 42 doses worth of Benadryl. That's so lame. Just get a Benadryl dosage like that. I know. What a coward, right? They're like, let me just go to sleep. Such a coward. Agreed. And then toxicology also showed that Jennifer, who was the one driving, had a blood alcohol content over the legal limit which likely also means that she was trying to get some liquid courage to murder her family. And as far as investigating how the SUV drove off the cliff, some experts determined that Jennifer had stopped at a dirt turnout off the Route 1 near the top of the cliff, and then she accelerated 20 miles per hour in three seconds with the throttle at 100%, pedal to the metal for about 70 feet until she reached the edge of the cliff, falling a massive plunge to the rocks below. And police investigated the Hart home in Washington after the murders and found that the house was immensely clean, organized, and sterile. They said that it appeared that the children had little to no access to toys, entertainment, or fun activities, and that it was actually nearly impossible to tell whose room was whose, since the rooms were not personalized at all for any of the children. And they also found the Hart family dogs deceased in the home, too, which is really sad. Like, they could have just taken the dogs to Kill a shelter them too. or something. Oh. Or to, well, <laughs> they uh, could have taken the dogs, too. Like, yeah, honestly, right. <laughs> they probably abused the dogs, too. Yeah. Um, so, in 2019, the Mendocino County Coroner actually convened a 14-member jury that found both Jennifer and Sarah Hart guilty of murdering their children, But, of course, sadly, they cannot be prosecuted for their crimes because they passed away with their children. A little too late, guys. Nice try, though. There's just so much pain in this case that cascades past just the Hart family that lost their lives for literally no reason. The neighbors also have to deal with the guilt from this case. Uh, The wife said that since she reported the abuse, she feels that this is what drove Jennifer and Sarah to take the family and to drive them off the cliff. And this in in no way is the neighbor's fault. I applaud her for reporting abuse. Abuse should always be reported. They did the right thing. They can't help it that Jennifer is a psychopath. And then also think about the birth families of these children who hoped that their children would end up with a family who could nurture and love them the way that they couldn't. And it's just really sad to see the way that this all ended. Jennifer and Sarah Hart... At the beginning of the story, they started their relationship on a great path. They had a good reputation with their friends. People who knew them personally said that they were loving people. They were a loving couple who were committed to helping others. And it seems like this really was their intention when they were in college. They were working toward getting education degrees and planning to foster children. 
And if those six children were raised in a home that embraced laughter at the dinner table and were allowed to literally eat food, it could have been a beautiful victory for the foster care system that already has too much tragedy. But instead, Jennifer and Sarah took six children who already had a series of unfortunate events with their biological mothers. And these two mothers ensured that the sweet babies lived the remaining years of their short lives in states of fear, hunger, darkness, isolation, and death. And those mothers were narcissistic and psychopathic. They were obsessed with displaying a facade of love. And they really just voiced to close friends that they regretted having a big family and adopting behind closed doors. Every single one of those children should have been given a chance to turn their past darkness into future light, and they will never have that chance. Do not have or adopt a child if you do not intend to nurture and protect them, always. Just do not do it. But thank you guys for bearing with us through this horrible story, and rest in peace to Marcus, Hannah, Devante, Jeremiah, Abigail, and Sierra. Tune in next week for the next ghastly tale. We love you guys. Love you.